0: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Peace, the United Methodist community. We're so excited that you are with us. My name is Jason Stephen Hagen. I'm the lead pastor here. Our sacred story reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 3, and then also verse 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 5, Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. There's an interesting thing preparing for this message because I decided to Google who are the meek in, and then it filled in naturally because I'm a pastor and Google, of course, knows the algorithm that I'm looking for. And it said, in the Beatitudes. So it kind of knew where I was going. That thing knows my mind better than I do. And up popped a few you know, ideas, articles, and different websites and things about people that have given sermons or written about this idea of the meek inheriting the earth. There was a really interesting caveat, though, is that the first two things that popped up had nothing to do with this verse. Um, they, I mean, it kind of did. It basically said the meek are those who are suffering and everything's going to be okay. And I was like, okay, that's an interesting idea. I don't know if that's really what's getting after here. The next one was... The meek are those who are suffering, but it's okay because they're going to go to heaven. And I, I, I looked at the verse, and I, I said, this has nothing about heaven. This, that was verse 3, right, when we talked about last week. The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If the idea was to be the exact same, then I would imagine the writer or the author would just write the same thing. And so what I was gaining is that some of the most popular ideas on this have no idea what is going on here because this is a little bit of a different verse that we have to explore in order to understand. Now before I dive into it, let me just remind us that we are in a series called On Your Side where we are talking about the Beatitudes, these kind of fundamental ideas about what God is encouraging us to be for and that God is on the side of some unique ways of being in this world. doesn't mean that God is against anyone in particular. doesn't mean that God is favoring one people over another, but that there are some particular circumstances in which God uniquely says, I am with you in the midst of that. So for instance, when you are poor in spirit, God is with you. When you are mourning, God is with you. When you are the meek, God is with you. When you're a peacemaker, God is with you. And there's also this encouragement to embody these ideas, that we're not just you know, going through this momentarily and then eventually we'll get out of it, but there's a call to be this way. That being poor in spirit isn't something that we are for a time and then we want to escape from. But no, being poor in spirit means that you're curious, that you're willing to have doubts, that you're willing to wrestle with your faith, that you're willing to challenge it and to think about it. It's like any good relationship. I always talk about this in the relationship of my wife and I. The person that I'm most curious about is my wife right? I love her more than anyone else in the world. I mean, my kids included, right? Uh, I love them too. But like this person that I'm journeying with and doing life with, I have, I'm so curious about her. Like I'm, I'm endlessly trying to figure her out mostly so that my life goes more smoothly, but ultimately because I love her so much. Now for someone that I don't care about, you know how curious I am about them? Not at all. Not at all. So this idea of entering into our faith and having this mentality of, I got more to learn, I'm poor in spirit, is this idea of, I am curious, I am wrestling, I am questioning because I want this to thrive, right? And so we are not just trying to say, how is God uniquely meeting here, but how can I embody this so that I can participate in it? Okay, so when I show up to a family dinner or like a family party, my favorite, one of my favorites being my wife's side on Christmas Eve. I instantly walk over to the dessert section and find out how many brownies with mint frosting there are so that I can be sure to get one. Sometimes when no one is looking, I grab one and stuff it in my mouth and then chew very calmly and walk away where there's nobody so I can finish chewing it to make sure that I get one. Because... My wife's aunt makes these amazing brownies with mint frosting and everybody loves them and there's only one pan and she always says there's more than enough but there's never more than enough because I never go home with a doggy bag full of mint brownies. That would be more than enough. That's not what happens on Christmas Eve. There's a there's a limited amount. There's a scarce amount if you will and I want to make sure that I get one. Do I give one to my kids? No. Do I tell my wife, "Hey, you want to come sneak one with me? Absolutely not. Because if I do that, that only takes away a couple more from later on when they're being passed around and I can get more. Because I love those so much. I kind of do this all the time. Whenever I go up to my parents' cabin, my mom always makes some kind of dessert. And then usually by dinner time, there's a corner of it missing and everyone goes, well, who took this? And now it's become a run-on joke because everyone knows it's me. I always take it because I know there's a limited amount and I want to make sure that I get some. Now, You could look at that and be like, wow, Jason's super selfish. Yes. Yes, I am. I'm very selfish about desserts. I like them an awful lot, and I make sure to get them. Now, if I get it early and then it runs out, am I mad about that? Only kind of, right? I get it. I already had my share. I should be grateful that I already had some. I still get kind of mad at my kids if they take too big a piece. Okay. Why am I talking about this? Because I think that we live in a culture of scarcity. And I don't think this is news to any of you. We live in a culture of scarcity. We live in a world that thrives on scarcity. We have been led to believe there's a limited amount of resources, there's a limited amount of goods and services out there, and if we don't grab what we need now, then it might run out and we might not get it. Now, some of you are saying, well, the supply lines are pretty bogged up, and if I don't get this in order for this to happen, then yes, there is a shortage, yes, there are situations where that is true. And there are situations where supply lines limit the amount of a resource to a certain region. For instance, food shortages in Africa is a real thing. But here's the deal. It's not because there's not enough food in the world. It's because it's not being distributed. It's because it's being kept in certain areas and thrown away in large portions in different more abundant areas of the world as opposed to getting into the hands and the mouths of those who actually need it. The world will tell you that there's a limited amount, but there's actually not. All of marketing is built mostly on the idea that you're not enough and if you don't get this thing, you won't arrive at the person you're supposed to be. Mr. Clean is an attractive bald guy. Why? Because cleaning your house should make you feel good and look good, right? How many of you ever watched a commercial? And you can study marketing to do this. I was a marketing major back in college. If you look at commercials of people who clean their home, whether it's a male or a female, in the first instance, how do they look? Disheveled, no makeup on, hairs everywhere, clothing's just hanging off the body. It's like they haven't ever washed clothes ever, and they just can't keep up with their house. It's a mess. And then suddenly, this magic cleaning product comes along, this Swiffer that picks up every drop, and they go and they use it, and suddenly, they have makeup on, their hair is perfect, their clothes are ironed, and the house looks wonderful. They're telling you that if you don't buy this, you won't look healthy you won't look attractive. They're telling you that if you don't have this, you won't be the kind of person that you want to be in the world. And there's a limited amount, so get it today. Right? This is the QVC of the world, right? If you don't get, there's a limited amount. Get it now. This is how the world has operated. And for so long, this scarcity mentality has bound people Bound people both internally and externally because there's a mindset change that binds us and there's a way of treating people in relationship that affects us. So I'm titling this sermon, Tending Abundance. Tending Abundance. Because I think we need to have an abundant mindset and that mindset is going to take some tending. It's going to take some tending. So what is scarcity? Scarcity is a temptation to see another as less than worthy when I walk into the family Christmas Eve celebration, I think everyone else is less worthy of the mint brownies than I am because I walk up and I sneak one, right? And if I saw someone else doing it, you wanna know what I would do? I would tell everyone else, I caught so-and-so taking mint brownies so that all the shame could be directed at them. Why? Because they are less worthy of that brownie than I am. This is how the world often operates. I am worthy of this resource. I'm worthy of this plenty. I'm worthy of this comfort, even at the expense of you. Scarcity is a temptation to see another as less than worthy. Scarcity, because of that, can easily become a weapon. Scarcity can become a weapon. If I know there's a scarce resource, If I know there's something that someone else wants and I get enough of it, then I have power over that person. I have the ability to control the situation. I have the ability to dictate terms on my level, not worrying about their needs, their wants. So what's the opposite of scarcity? Well, we've already said it. It's abundance. Abundance is trusting that there is enough for everyone trusting that even if i don't get what i think i need in this moment i trust that there will be enough i trust that if you say you need this i'm trusting that that is true and that i will have what i need i think one of the ways in which this plays out is in college admissions now i'm going to step in some like maybe dangerous territory here but i don't mind that i hear the narrative in the news and in and in one-on-one situations where it's like, well, these colleges just have a quota of, you know, spots to fill for people that don't look like a white male. And that's unfair. And they're being marginalized. And they're the ones that are being oppressed because they can't get into the college of their dreams. But all these other people get an opportunity that they don't get to have. Here's my question. Did that person not make it into college? Did they not have anyone offer them a spot because the history of people of color, the history of women in our country is that that opportunity hasn't always been there. And making room, making space, having that opportunity is abundantly necessary in order for equity to exist and in order for the thriving of all people to exist. And so we have to recognize that abundance is trusting that there is enough For all of us, even if I don't get what I think I want or think I need, I need to trust that there is going to be enough. Abundance also realize that your thriving is intimately tied to my own flourishing. That if I want to be the best that I can be, if I want to see the flourishing of my life I am intimately tied to you. We are part of a symbiotic relationship. We all are tied to one another. We all exist on this planet, breathe the same air. We all use similar resources. We all flow with or without one another. And there is a tie to one another. And so if you thrive, I thrive. If you suffer, one of two things is either happening. Either I'm suffering with you or I'm thriving despite you. And that causes me to actually become something I don't want to be. I become a person who's okay with the pain around me, as opposed to meeting it as God would have me. So abundance realizes that your thriving is intimately tied to my own flourishing. I want to tell you three stories in the Bible that really highlight this idea of the abundant uh idea of god before we dive into who are the meek and how does that impact um our understanding of this passage here's the thing about this passage blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth what i wanted to focus on what my mind instantly went to the first time i read that was this is about the earth this isn't about uh heaven This is about something happening in our midst. So where did that naturally take me? All the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two. There's a story going on in in creation, a story going on in the garden. And in that story, they have everything they need. There's an abundance. God says you can eat from any of the trees. You can receive from any of these trees and you will live. You will flourish here. You have no need or want. You have it all around you. You have a job to do while you're here. You have responsibility. Tend and guard this. Take care of it. Cultivate this creation. See that it flourishes. The animals, the plant life, all of it. Flourish, multiply. This is what you're here to do. And then what happens? Eve gets this idea, and Adam is sitting right next to her. So if anyone thinks this is all on Eve, you're wrong. Adam's right there. He's got every opportunity to say, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. We should probably not listen to snakes. Instead, he has no problem with it, and he's going to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil just as well. What is that tree all about? Scarcity. There's something out there that I don't think I'm getting, and I should have it. And I don't trust that God has my best in mind. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take. The difference between the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is how we approach it. The tree of life you receive from because you know you are interconnected in this ongoing flow of abundance. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is something you grab, you take from. It's the difference between receiving and taking. Taking says, I don't think there's enough. I'm getting mine before anyone else to make sure that I have the power. I have the resource I need. The tree of life says, there's more than enough. There is plenty. There's an abundance. Receive, receive, receive. And so Eve and Adam take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we know the result is there's disconnection, there's brokenness. God's going to immediately meet that need, bring about healing and restoration, work towards this reconciliation that we see throughout the Bible. And so we see this idea of scarcity entering in in the story of the garden. Second story, the story of Egypt and the wilderness. Fast forward to the people of Israel. They're a flourishing family. And then there's a famine in the land. Their older brother, younger brother Joseph, is off in Egypt. They think he's dead, but he's actually been in Egypt this whole time. And he's worked his way up into being on the council of Pharaoh because he's been able to interpret dreams. And he tells Pharaoh, there's a famine coming, and it's going to last seven years. But before that, there's going to be seven years of abundance. If we're smart, we know that there's going to be enough. We just got to cultivate it, and we got to make sure that we have it. And so what happens? They store up the abundance so that they can make it through the famine. What happens to Joseph's family? They run out of food. They didn't know the famine was coming. But what do they do? They go to Egypt because there is enough. And they survive. They survive in Egypt. But then generations after Joseph, after this memory, after this abundant mentality, Egypt uses the abundance of their resources and turns it into scarcity and says, you know what? We actually have it all. We could use that, not just so that we can serve others and we could see the flourishing of all those around us. We could use it to enslave others. We can use the abundant supply that, we've, that we have to actually control and, and, and embody power in this region. And so Egypt becomes this place of power where scarcity takes hold and they end up becoming the oppressor that enslaves the people of Israel. And we know that through the story of Moses, they are liberated from that slavery. They go out into the wilderness. What's the first thing that God does for the people when they are in the wilderness? Brings food, manna, and says there will always be enough. The people are like, we want to go back to Egypt. Slavery was bad, but at least we had food. Out here in the wilderness, we don't have anything. God says, you're right. You need food, and I don't want you to worry about it. Every morning you wake up, there will be enough, because there's always supposed to be enough. Third story, the story of the 5,000. Fast forward all the way to the New Testament. Jesus is preaching, he's doing his thing. Similar to the Sermon on the Mount, he's out there healing people, he's helping people, telling the story, the good news, that God is with you, that the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's within you, and that God is up to something and you gotta get on board and you gotta be a part of this new way of love and reconciliation, this new way of forgiveness. And people are gathering and gathering and there's 5,000 in the scriptures, men, which means that there's probably women and children there as well. So there's, there's probably over 10,000 people there, maybe even 15,000 people that are present listening to Jesus, interacting with Jesus. And he turns to the 12 disciples and he says, all right, feed them. And they're like, what? There's 12 of us. What are we supposed to do? We don't have the resources. Send them back to town. Jesus is like, no, feed them. Like, we, we don't even know what to do. And he goes, all right, bring me what you got. What do you have? And a little boy walks up with his fish and his loaves, his meal for the day, and he hands it to the disciples, and Jesus blesses it, prays over it, and then starts breaking it apart. And not only, not only does Jesus bless it and break it apart and feed all of the people gathered there, the 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people that were there that day, but how many basketfuls were left over. Anyone remember that story? How many basketfuls were left over? 12. How many disciples were there? 12. How many tribes were there in Israel? 12. What's the message here? This is an abundant God. This is a God who says, you didn't think there was enough? I got so much left over that each of you get a take-home bag, which I wish I had at Christmas Eve. Each of you have a basket full of blessing, a basket full of abundance that represents not only you, but represents this entire history of a people that I have been looking out for and calling upon to shape the trajectory of the world. God is showing us through Scripture over and over again That there is more than enough. If we trust God and we get to the work of participating in what God is up to. Because like the supply lines, it's not simply about is there enough. It's about how is it distributed? How can we participate? Here's the cool thing about the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Who gave the food out that day? It wasn't Jesus. It says he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and they gave it to the people. Our job is to distribute the abundant love and the abundant resources of God. We are the ones who distribute. There is enough. It just has to get to the people. It has to get to those in need. So who then are the meek? The meek are not those who are passive or incapable of asserting themselves. I think that's often how we characterize the meek. That's not what's going on here in the scriptures. The meek are not the passive or incapable of asserting themselves types. Instead, the meek are the humble and the humbled, as as Reverend Elaine talked about. It's those who have been knocked down systemically, knocked down for circumstances, knocked down by society or culture or history, and they've been humbled and they appreciate each breath. The thing about connecting with people and listening to stories of those who have been marginalized, depressed, hurt, is that there is a deep appreciation for life. One of my good friends, Lisa, does ministry in the prison system. The thing that she talks about in her work in the prisons is that she sees more generosity, more kindness, more willing to share than in any other area of her life. That those that have the least are willing to give the most. Those who are meek, those who have those who are humble or have been humbled appreciate each breath that is given to them. Also, the meek are uniquely positioned to see creation thrive because they guard it with Respect. When you appreciate every breath you take, you see every day, every moment, every month, every new season as a gift that is given to you. This opportunity to show up and you guard it, you respect it, you cultivate its flourishing because you know, you know it might not be there tomorrow. And you respect that so much that you want to cultivate the best out of it. There was one Thanksgiving where I was, uh, we were living in Tennessee and my in-laws were living in Memphis, Tennessee. We were on the other side, so it was about a six-hour trip over. We were going there for Thanksgiving and my, my wife's grandma uh, was coming down from Minnesota and her, and her grandpa and they were coming and we were going to hang out for Thanksgiving for about four days. It was going to be from like Wednesday night all the way through the weekend. And the thing about Michelle's family that is really wonky is they have this uh, thing about Pie where they eat pie for breakfast, most notably on, on on Thanksgiving morning, because they're one of those families that gets up at like 6 a.m. and does a turkey trot at about, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, and then they go and have pie by 8.30 in the morning. And so it's it's their way of kicking off Thanksgiving. And I didn't know this when I was proposing and then marrying this woman that I would have be dragged into turkey trot after turkey trot after turkey trot. But I have. I've done too many of these things. But the nice thing is that I get pie. And so at first, Emma comes down and she gets there and gets settled and she whipped up a pie on on Wednesday afternoon. And we were all like, awesome, there's pie. And I looked at it and I counted the people. It's like, there's 11 of us. And there's about eight slices of that. And I got real nervous because so I was like, I want to make sure I get my pie. And I was like, well, it's going to get really obvious if I take a slice of pie before I run, so I can't do that. So what am I going to do? And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. i gotta, i got to come up with a strategy. I better run fast so I can get home first and get my pie quickly. So we set out. We do our cookie shot. We come back. pie's pie sitting on the counter. Everyone's like, oh, can't wait to get pie. And then she goes, oh, I'm sorry. I haven't gotten them all out yet. Remember, there were 11 adults in this family that were all hanging out for the weekend. She opens up the refrigerator. There are 11 pies. For four days, we had an abundance of pie. All fears relieved. We had pie for days. Quite literally, pie for days. We don't live in a world where you have to make sure you get your slice of pie. We live in a world where God says, let me open up the fridge and show you there's a whole refrigerator full of pies. Now it's our job to make sure that everybody gets enough so that we can all flourish. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Here's how I'm going to put it today. God is on the side of the humble and humbled those who trust in abundance and not scarcity, for they will persevere to the harvest and cultivate creation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we're, we are humbled by this word. We're humbled by this idea of being meek. It doesn't sound good culturally. No one ever makes a commercial and says, be meek. No one ever writes a song and puts it that way. But God, you have called us to be different. You've called us to this upside-down kingdom, this way of being in the world that is salt and light, this way of being in the world that actually sees the flourishing of the other and not just ourselves. God, help us to be people who don't live with scarcity, but instead live with abundance, knowing that there is enough. And that when we distribute love, mercy, justice, and grace, there's flourishing that happens. In Christ's name, amen.